Welcome to the Evolutionary Androgen Podcast. I'm Charlotte Alea, and I am on a quest for the stories that reveal to us our evolutionary potential. I search folklore throughout time and from around the globe that hold the keys to transform humanity's current crisis, from fractured and separated to whole and healed. As we unify feminine with masculine, a new version of us is emerging. One of the questions I often ask myself when I read old and ancient stories is, does this have any relevance for today? Is it a helpful message? And do I personally vibe with it? Okay, that's actually multiple questions. But I believe it is important to scrutinize what narratives we are bringing forward during this time. I'm not interested in rehashing someone else's drama from the past. I've done enough of that in this lifetime. I want the stories that are going to provide some form of a blueprint towards where, as a collective, we want to go. I also don't want to force another culture's narrative onto our own. And that is certainly a danger when it comes to world mythology because everything is and was written within a specific cultural and political landscape. And we can't entirely know what precisely occurred that provided us with the story in the first place. For the second half of the Egyptian Isis and Osiris drama, I find it particularly important to scrutinize the relevancy of this story because it takes us into the dynamics of war and the patriarchy battling itself into oblivion. Is this a Pandora's box we want to open? Or can we declare that we are past all that hyper-masculine punching, jabbing, and stabbing? I don't know about you, but I am personally really tired of the whole battle between light and dark trope that appears in just about every heroic story the popular culture feeds us. I mean... Can we all agree that if you're fighting someone or something with violence, you're basically stooping to its level and becoming your own enemy? The continuation of the Isis and Osiris epic goes there, all the way there. But there are twists and surprises, and the story lands us with a really important message I believe we all need to receive right now about patriarchy, about the battle between light and dark. So let's proceed on. As we take this next step, we enter into the emerald ray of reciprocity. Think of every step we take on the evolutionary quest as one ray of a rainbow. This ray could have also been named harmony. It could be named balance. Reciprocity is where I landed because it comes down to the fact that us humans who are steeped in a patriarchal world 
are having to relearn the laws of the natural world. And reciprocity is one of those most important laws. Colonial conquest culture has trained us to overtake and grab with entitlement or undercompensate and sacrifice as a martyr. We have forgotten how to live in balance and harmony, to be in a constant flow of giving and receiving. Set, the antagonist of our story, exemplifies the shadow of the conqueror. He takes ownership of the land by force simply because he believes he deserves it. He is full of wrath and greed. The question is, is that baby in Isis's womb really the answer the earth is waiting for? Will he restore balance and justice? And how? Let's continue the story to find out. There are countless versions of this story you can read, but my favorite and the one that inspired this telling is in The Passion of Isis and Osiris, A Gateway to Transcendent Love by Jean Houston. When our story left off in the last episode, Osiris's soul at last crossed over into the spirit realm with the help of his beloved Isis and his sister Nephthys working their magic in secret. However, Set and his minions were hot on their tails even after the temple of Osiris had been erected and all pieces of him recovered. Set was not going to give up his pursuit of terror and chaos and had yet another agenda to fulfill. Destroy the baby and heir of Osiris swelling within Isis's womb. Isis and Nephthys remain in the temple for several weeks. The village women bring them food and drink, paying their respects to their great mother goddess and father god, as Nephthys and Isis sleep off their exhaustion upon the white limestone floor. Meanwhile, Horus kicks within Isis's womb. One terrible night, Set and his minions descend upon the two goddesses and bind them in chains. He takes Isis to a dark dungeon, holding her prisoner within the deep belly of the earth. He assigns her a loom and tells her to weave. Believing this a great demotion and arduous task for such a goddess of her status. This, she says to him, Gladly, I return to the dark womb of my mother as I weave and spin together the new life growing inside of me. Thank you for this gift to be alone with the spirits of the unmanifest. Set laughs at his sister, the powers of dark feminine magic unknown to him, and leaves her alone in the dark. Isis sets to work, weaving by morning, spinning by night. All the while, she listens to the voices of the dead within the earth's womb. She spins their stories, hopes, and dreams into the thread. She listens to the calls from the heart of earth and answers them through the tapestries she weaves fit for a king. She transforms dead matter into new life. 
All the while Horus grows within her womb, his bones knit into form as Isis sings to him and prays into the threads and tapestries she weaves. She binds together black and white and weaves together all that she envisions for a new Egypt. Two lands united north and south, a ladder to heaven, golden wings taking flight. One day, Mat, the goddess of justice, visits Isis disguised as a weaver. She tells Isis that her son will soon be born and that Isis must escape the prison or Set would surely destroy her child. That night, the scorpion goddess Selket sends seven scorpions that crawl beneath the prison door. With their pinchers, they slice through the ropes and chains that bind Isis. They sting the guards to death and set Isis free. Isis walks along the sandy plateau to the river delta, and there her water breaks. As Isis prepares to give birth to her son, the gods and goddesses of earth gather. The ram god Gnum, the frog goddess Hecat, the serpent Wajit, the scorpion Selket. Isis can do nothing but dance in the dawn's light, scream and moan as a great fire overtakes her body. Nephthys hears the calls of her sister and comes running to her side. As the sun breaks upon the eastern horizon, a great falcon with golden wings screeches across the sky, and Isis gives birth to Horus upon the muddy bricks of the river, pushed from the dark world of the Great Mother into the light. The falcon flies to the baby's brow and places upon it a golden crown of sunlight. Child of the dawn, child of two horizons, he is Horus, the twice-born, the gods and goddesses chant. Isis blows her breath into the baby's mouth, speaks to him words of power and protection, and bathes him in the river. Horus, twice-born, she whispers to him, you are the answer to your father's death. The morning is all too glorious for Set. He knows the brightness of the day could mean only one thing. Isis has given birth. Filled with rage, he sends out an army of minions to search for the child of Osiris. But Isis has hidden them both away, deep in the swamp amidst stalks of papyrus, surrounded by a calligraphy of birds. There she nurses Horus, for his first five years. All those years set searches, and at last he locates them. He waits for Isis to leave her son while she ventures into town for food. He sends a scorpion into the nest of Horus and stings him. Horus lies fatally wounded as Isis feels the great pain take over her son's body and hurries back to him. The gods and goddesses of the earth gather in tearful shock and agony. Isis calls to Thoth in the heavens, who answers her call. He whispers words of power into Isis's ear, which she chants over Horus's weak body. The poison dies. Horus returns to life. 
Now that Set knows where they are, Isis knows he will continue his attacks. And so, with a heavy and sorrowful heart, she hands her son to some nursemaids for care and protection. Take him away from here. Take him to a place of sanctuary and safety. Keep him hidden until his time to meet Set as a man and a king. Ra, the sun god, will answer for him. Osiris will watch over him, and a mother's love will protect him. When it is safe, I will return. The boy breaks into tears as he watches his mother leave. He reaches out his arms in protest. And yet, she refuses to turn around, knowing that if she does, she will never be able to walk away. The years go by as Isis busies herself day and night in order to maintain a semblance of love, peace, and wisdom across the lands of Egypt. Set rules over all the land, but Isis travels in secret amongst the women, teaching them the ways of magic. She cannot let darkness and chaos stamp out the light. By night, Isis communes with her beloved Osiris in the underworld. They make passionate love in the dream time. They weave the bridges and passageways between the realms of the living and the dead. Osiris teaches her about the world he has built in the underworld through his own grief, his own desire for life and light. Out of nothing, he has built a whole realm through the power of the word. He has sealed the passage from life into death, into new life. Isis takes this wisdom to the women of the villages. She teaches them the mysteries of soul midwifery, the mysteries of death and rebirth, the mysteries of eternal life. All this she does in secret with Set, none the wiser. The seven scorpions of Selket protect her. Many years pass, until one day Isis cannot deny the sorrow of separation that consumes her heart. She must see her son. She must see Horus. She calls upon her scorpions to show her the way to the dwelling of Horus. She travels across the land until she is led to a small hut protected by the serpent goddess Wajit. She knocks on the door and is greeted by a man, tall and broad. Isis throws herself upon the body of her grown son, wraps her arms around him, and weeps, while Horus asks, Who are you? I am your mother, the goddess Isis, queen of heaven and earth. Horus pushes her away and clenches his fists, commanding, Where have you been? Isis sees already the makings of a warrior. She says to him, Perceive the source of your strength and do not use it against those you love. I have much to teach you about your father, about your destiny. Horus lets his mother in and the lessons begin. 
Isis and Horus disguise themselves as falcons to hide from Set and his minions, and they travel up and down the Nile to all the great cities of Upper and Lower Egypt, to all the great temples of Osiris. Isis teaches Horus the words of power, the mysteries of the gods and goddesses, the ways of magic and the breath, the maps of the inner earth caverns, and the teachings of Osiris, lord of the underworld. She prepares Horus to meet his father directly and sends him off alone on a moonless night into the desert, beneath a blanket of stars, to continue his education in the dream time. Alone, Horus lays upon a mat and descends into deep meditation, and there he meets his father in the underworld. Osiris tells Horus of his destiny to reclaim Egypt in his honor, to rule in his place and avenge his death. At first, Horus refuses. He desires to live a life all his own, not one of someone else's making. He is shown the life of his mother and father and all the events that led up to this moment, his first birth among the heavens the two deaths of his father by Set, the resurrection by his mother, the creation of his own life upon the death of his father. He is shown the interweaving of his life with Osiris, father and son sharing one destiny. Horus bows to his father in honor. What will you have me do, he says. All the while Horus's body sleeps in the desert, his soul trains with Osiris, learning the ways of the warrior, learning how to use a bow and arrow, spear, knife, and mace. He teaches him about the scales of balance and how justice awaits all of Egypt. When a man has become a warrior, Osiris returns Horus to his body in the desert. Horus awakens a man transformed, ready to meet his destiny. Horus marches through the cities, a king, lions by his side, gold bands wrapped around bulging arms, a crown of sun upon his head. He commands the reverence, respect, and honor of the people with ease. He reestablishes the festivals of the gods and goddesses. He returns the fields to greening. He tells the stories of his parents and teaches the people the old ways of glory. As Set's minions come into his presence, they bow to him and change their loyalty. As Set's concubines come into his presence, they swoon and follow him. All of this sends Set into a flurry of outrage. He hunts down Horus, knife in hand. Rather than fight back, however, Horus assumes the form of the falcon and takes to the sky. He flies higher and higher towards the sun until he arrives at the heavenly realms of the gods. There he pleads his case before a council of Thoth, messenger of the gods, Ra, god of the sun, Atom, and Newt. My father is dead, but I am his son. He has taught me the ways. 
It is his wish that I rule over the fertile lands for which Set has stolen. Give them back to me. I have come on behalf of my mother and father. I have come to receive Osiris's crown. Set arrives to the great hall of the gods just in time and pleads his own case before the gods, stating, I have ruled over both lands of Egypt for years, before this boy had even been conceived. Now he tries to take it away from me? At that, a mighty disagreement breaks out amongst the heavenly gods. Split were they amongst who deserved rulership of the Fertile Valley. Newt and Thoth taking the side of Horus, Ra and Atom taking the side of Set. The entire realm of the gods breaks into chaos as they all begin taking sides and no agreement can be met. This disagreement goes on and on and on until at last Ra kicks both Set and Horus out of the great hall sends them tumbling down through the sky and into the Nile River. Let them fight it out amongst themselves, he says. For eight years, the two warriors wrestle in the waves, clashing their knives, heaving their clubs, until they emerge on land, standing upon the backs of crocodiles. They fling their spears at each other, exchanging insults for a whole year, and then transform themselves into bears, yowling, biting, swiping at each other, stomping their feet for another five years. Set transforms himself into a snake, Horus into a mongoose, and on they chase one another through the sands, tearing at each other's flesh for another ten years. Then they transform themselves into ferocious underworld beasts, Set with the head of a donkey, Horus with the head of a lion. For 20 years, they battle this way. They run through the lands of Egypt, scorpions in their hands. 40 more years passed. One god was night, the other day. One god was east, the other west. One was heat and rain, the other sandstorm and light. 75 more years pass, and the battle wages on. All of Egypt is in chaos and turmoil. The Nile runs red with the blood of slain warriors. The children in Egypt hold their breath in fear. Isis knows this has to stop. She must do something to interfere and end the battle for good. She crafts a spear from a sharpened sycamore branch and adds a copper point. While Set and Horus are battling as hippopotamuses beneath the water, she ties a rope and sends the spear down through the muck to strike the one she believes to be Set. I am Horus, the hippopotamus spits. Tell your spear to release me. In great dismay, Isis withdraws the spear and plunges it into the flesh of Set instead. Sister, what have you done? You would slay your own brother? Tell your spear to release me. Isis is filled with ambivalent grief and withdraws the spear. This angers a wrath-filled Horus, who believes his mother has betrayed him. He charges after his mother with his spear and decapitates her with one swift blow. Filled with immediate shame at what he has done, Horus runs into the wilderness, 
without intention of returning. Set follows Horus, and upon finding him, cuts out his eyes. Meanwhile, the gods of heaven watch. Something must be done. The war has been fought for over a hundred years and must come to an end. Thoth finds Isis by the river's edge and uses the power of word to craft her a new head, that of a cow. Meanwhile, the goddess of love, Hathor, finds Horus bereft and alone without eyes. She restores his eyes with gold and escorts him to the great hall of the gods. You must make peace, the gods command Horus and Set. Go home and make food and wine together. Learn to live in harmony. They do as they have been commanded. Horus goes to the palace of Set, where Set wines and dines him. His concubines dance for him. He even lays next to Set in his bed. But in the middle of the night, Horus awakens to Set, holding a knife above him, ready to slay. Horus flees in the middle of the night to the house of his mother and weeps into her lap. I am a fool. I am ashamed, he says. Set betrayed me. Isis holds up the head of her son and says to him, From pigs you get pigs. From corn you get corn. From Osiris you reap your harvest. From Set you reap only dirt and sorrow. I have a plan for your uncle Set. Follow my lead. The next morning Set calls another council with the gods, pleading his case yet again. The boy who stands before you is no warrior. I am the son of Newt and Jeb, the legitimate heir. You killed my father. You imprisoned my mother, Horus retorts. Isis intervenes. My mother Newt has already made her decision to give the throne to Horus. This is between Horus and me, interrupts Set. Send Isis away. Fair enough, says Ra. The council moves the meeting to a remote island in the midst of tall reeds. They tell the boatmen to not let anyone cross who resembles Isis. They bring a large feast and sit down in attempt to resolve the conflict once and for all. Meanwhile, Isis follows close behind. She transforms herself into an old beggar woman dressed in ripped and stained rags. She stoops over a cane and smiles at the boatman with snarled, broken teeth. One gold ring shows on her finger. Boatman, let me cross. I must get this bowl of flour to the young shepherd who tends the cattle. He has not eaten in five days. I cannot let any woman who resembles Isis to cross, the boatman says. Do you think I resemble Isis? Look at me, she coughs in his face. Not in the least, he says. So take me across, she says, as she hands him the gold ring. He does as she commands, and once across, Isis hides herself amongst the reeds and changes herself into a beautiful young woman with dazzling eyes. 
she catches Set's attention, who just can't help himself. Beautiful woman, would you commune with a god? She begins to weep and tells him a most woeful story. How she was the wife of a herdsman and they had a child. But her husband died, leaving her son to tend to the cattle. But then a stranger marched in and demanded, Boy, leave your mother and the cattle, or else I'll throw you out. If you are a god, Isis disguised that the young woman says, Honor what is right and defend my son. Set is quite sure of himself and responds, Oh, noble woman, I cannot believe it. A stranger comes to steal your husband's cattle while the son is yet living there? It cannot be. In an instant, Isis transforms herself into a swallow and takes to the air. Aha! Your own words condemn you, she says. Set shakes his fist at the bird perched in the tree. Damn that woman, she tricked me. He marches back to the council of the gods and explains to them what happened. What did you say to the woman? They ask. I said this is horrible and cannot be. Then it is decided our work here is done. You've answered your own question as to what is right and what is wrong, says Ra. In one final attempt to have his way, Set draws his knife upon Ra, his biggest advocate. No more fighting, Ra says. I'm sick to death of it. Who have we not petitioned? Ra asks. Osiris, responds Thoth. Ra commands that a letter be sent to Osiris, reminding him that he was made of the heavens, that the goddess of the scales of justice, Mat, lives in the heavens, and that the heavens have decided on Set to be the heir and ruler of the fertile land. Osiris responds thus. The scales of Mat now reside with me in the underworld. Not now, nor ever again in the heavens. For I will prevail to the end of time. The souls of evil will exist no more. Let anyone who desires to test this cross through the dark passages to my world. Give Horus the white crown of Egypt. This is my decision, now and evermore. Isis rejoices. Her son becomes king of Egypt. The Nile floods and feeds the valley. Ra returns to the heavens and takes Set with him as a bear of lightning. And Isis, and her newfound age of wisdom, becomes queen of heaven, earth, and the underworld, honored and worshipped by all. Hoo-wee. That was quite a story. I think the longest we've had yet, right? My favorite part of the second half of this epic is actually that first scene where Isis is weaving together Horus's destiny within the womb of Mother Earth. 
speaking to the spirits of the ancestors, receiving their prayers and wishes. This is a crucial piece of dark feminine wisdom that we have already reclaimed in this podcast, including with the story of Inanna in the first two episodes. And it's even more amazing to me that this feminine power of bringing new life to what is dead remains totally invisible to Set, the toxic masculine element of the story. He thinks he's punishing Isis when, in actuality, he is creating the perfect setup for his own future downfall. It is in this prison cave that Isis weaves a vision for the future of a united Egypt. She becomes the creator of not just Horus's destiny, but the destiny of all of Egypt. We then see Isis having to make another huge sacrifice for the sake of her son this time and her beloved Egypt. She must hand over the care of Horus to others for his safety. But this time we do not see her collapse in agony and grief. The Isis in the second half of this epic is more seasoned and wise, more mature a bit harder and unattached. She rises above her emotions to do what is necessary, all the while seeing the bigger picture and ultimately where it all will lead. In this way, Isis remains, even in the portions of the story where she's not an active character, the author of this whole story. And the voice of reason and wisdom. She wrote the outcome of the story in the dark cave of the mother. It's hilarious to me that all the other gods don't realize this, don't realize they actually don't have a choice as to how this epic will end. We see them battling it out in total chaotic disagreement, getting absolutely nowhere. We see them even kicking Isis out of their negotiations, believing she is an interference. When in truth, Isis is the one that holds the power. It is ultimately her responsibility to see that the story has the outcome she desires, and she'll do whatever it takes. There are obvious moments we see this in the narrative, like when Isis returns to Horus and leads his education and preparation as a warrior. And more subtle moments, like when Horus seeks solace with Isis after Set betrays him, and she says to him, don't worry, I have a plan. Are you kidding me? She always had a plan. The reason I appreciate the warring aspects of this story is that it shows us how utterly pointless it is. It keeps going on and on and on. It would have never ended if Isis hadn't at last interfered. In a scene that looks like a total mess up on her part, I mean, she does lose her head. But did she actually screw up? Was it a mess up? Or were all those hits, misses, and beheadings precisely engineered by Isis as well? I believe they were. Horus and Set had to fight until not one god of the Egyptian pantheon believed war to be the answer. Isis needed to prove that war would never unite Egypt and usher in a new era. 
She needed to teach her son a lesson about where the passion and fury created through war and violence leads to harming the exact person you want to protect. Isis's words, some of the first she speaks to Horace as an adult, ring true for a second time when she takes his anger out on her. These were her words. Perceive the source of your strength and do not use it against those you love. When Horace hurts his mother, it's like game over. He realizes he has failed, which he needed to do in order to stop fighting and for Isis's plan to advance to the next step. Isis knew she would not be invited to the final negotiations. She stuck her nose in at precisely the right moment to rub Set the wrong way. So Ra would kick her out and she could assume the role of first the bigger woman and then the beautiful maiden. Her outcome of divine justice prevails because she outwits and outsmarts not only Set, but the entire council of heavenly gods. There is an interesting final turn to the story when Set threatens to take out his biggest supporter, Ra. And suddenly, they decide to consult Osiris in the underworld, which up to this point, he hadn't been mentioned by them at all. However, this was also likely by Isis and Osiris' divine design. We learn early in the second half of this epic that Isis and Osiris commune every night in the dreamtime. They are working together to manifest the destiny of their sun-child and to create a pathway for everlasting life for all who walk upon the earth. Isis needed to keep the gods ignorant of the workings of Osiris in order to bring Horus to the throne. She needed to shroud the mysteries of death and rebirth from them, which (laughs) included Mott, the great goddess of justice, the holder of the scales, moving from the heavens to the underworld so that those on earth could be resurrected and reborn. She needed them not to see how powerful Osiris had become. There is this interesting aspect of the old gods of heaven and their antiquated ways of power and control versus the new world order of earthly gods and the sweeping changes they are making, including teaching love and harmony, justice and mercy, rebirth and resurrection. This is definitely something... I can relate to, something that all of us listening can relate to, I hope and I think. It's the age-old story of conservatives versus progressives, those that want to keep things as they are versus those that want social change. Earth was evolving according to the free will of the gods picked to walk upon Earth. Earth was becoming a kinder, more generous, and prosperous place because of Isis and Osiris and their divine child, Horus. In the end, though, Horus isn't the point of the story. Horus was never going to be the savior because there isn't a savior. 
believing that light can overcome darkness, belongs to the antiquated patriarchal order of justice. In the new world order, light and dark are balanced. Divine, unconditional, transcendent love binds light and dark, life with death, the earth and the underworld together. Life gives itself to death and death reciprocates and gives itself to life. It is a constant flow of give and take. And that is why the love story between Isis and Osiris, Queen of Heaven and Earth, and Lord of the Underworld is the greatest love story ever told because their love is the blueprint for our current evolution. When the light in you makes love to the dark in you, watch out and make way. The new world order is a light within your consciousness. The sacred third, the sun child Horus, is alive within you. And this divine union and creation of the sacred third usher in magnificent changes that the old antiquated version of you could never have expected or imagined. And so I wonder, dear listener, what if you were to ask yourself in a moment of abundance, how might I rejoice in the temporary nature of this fullness? How might I give it away? And what if you were to ask yourself in a moment of grief, how might I give my grief over to the creation of more light? Would you feel the spark of Isis and Osiris within you? Would you know of what it truly means to embody reciprocity and transcendent love? We'll be back next month for a different story from a different part of the world as we journey to the turquoise ray of truth. You have been listening to The Evolutionary Androgen, A Mythic Quest, with me, Charlotte Alea. If you liked this episode, we hope you'll consider subscribing and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for tuning in.